Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm pleased to welcome Jonathan Sarna to the program to talk about his book, American Judaism, A History, his seminal work, which he recently republished in a second revised edition. Jonathan Sarna is a university professor and the Joseph H. and Bell R. Brown Professor of American Jewish History at Brandeis University's Department of Near Eastern and Judaic Studies, where he also serves as the director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies. Jonathan's one of the leading scholars of American Jewish history, having published too many books, articles, and edited volumes to list here, to be totally honest. Jonathan first published American Judaism, A History, which was widely acclaimed in 2004, and the new edition appeared just this year, in 2019. As we'll talk about today, American Judaism is one of a series of syntheses of American Jewish history that have come out in recent years, and Jonathan has a really important perspective on how we tell the history of America's Jews and why it matters. I'm really excited to share this conversation with Jonathan, who's a dear friend and a mentor of mine, about American Jewish history, about his work at large, and about his book, American Judaism, in particular. It's a real treat to talk about these issues with him and share our conversation with a wide audience. So thanks for listening. So hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. I'm really excited to talk with you about this new edition of American Judaism and about how we can situate it uh, within the broader development of American Jewish history and your own work as well. One thing I thought we might start with is trying to situate the book itself uh, within its historical context. It's, I think, really significant to keep in mind that you published the book American Judaism initially in 2004. Uh, there was just a whole lot of historical activity surrounding the 350th anniversary of the settlement of the first Jews in New York City. Uh, and I was wondering if you maybe wanted to start off by commenting on the significance of writing a landmark history, as it were, at a moment of public commemoration and memory. You know, how did that play a role in your thinking about American Jewish history and also the broad range of activities as well as other books some of which we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, that also were published around the same time. Actually, when I began the book in the middle of the 1990s, it never occurred to me that it should be published for the 350th. I had a deadline uh, with Yale University Press to deliver the book in 2000, uh, unfortunately, I had cancer. I missed that deadline. Then suddenly I had a great idea. I'll mollify the press by saying, let's bring it out for the 350th anniversary of American Jewish life. They loved the idea. And it was only then, and by then I was well into the book, uh, that I knew that you know, it was going to be an anniversary production. But I would say that only the very beginning of the book and the very end of the book related to the 350th. The rest was simply coincidental and um, uh, certainly not planned from the start. Right. Clearly, you didn't necessarily plan that it would come out in 2004. But what interests me here is as you came to realize that you would be publishing this book at this commemorative moment, in what ways did that affect the way that you approached looking at American Jewish history as a whole? And then as well, when you were working on the new edition of the book, which is clearly not within this particular historical context, being now, what, 15 years or so later, how do you approach the same material again and when we're in a different historical context? Um, so really wonderful questions. I think that for the 350th, my goal was really to help 
American Jews situate themselves historically, understand themselves historically. Too much of the writing in the field is simply sociological, without any historical context. My hope was to provide that. I also wanted to put forth a more cyclical view with ups and downs of American Judaism, much like American religion. Yes, there are awakenings, there are declines. um, And uh, to put that narrative and model forward as an alternative to two other models, one is the regnant model of linear decline. Every generation is less religious. Jews start off orthodox and end up uh, marching down the aisle of a church. That's one model, the declension model. And the other model, which is very prominent in the social sciences, is a, a linear model, meaning I look at where I am now, I project that into the future, and I assume nothing will change. Well, I knew that everything had changed. There's not a single moment in American Jewish history where a linear model would accurately tell you how the community would look in 50 years. So I rejected both the linear model and the declension model and argued instead for what some have called a cyclical model, that there are revivals, there are declensions, that that's been going on for a long time, that every generation has really worried about whether Jews would survive, and that indeed that fear that Jews would not survive has helped to ensure that they did. In other words, the fear about the future has itself been a prime motivator for um, for change. And, and that was really the, the central thesis of the book, which is very different than the way the story had previously been told. I also wanted to move away from some of the generational determinism, a notion that, well, you had immigrants and children of immigrants and grandchildren of immigrants. I think Jews are much more influenced in America by the context of their times, looking at uh, what's going on around them, what's going on in Christianity, what's going on in the polity. That's infinitely more influential on the Jewish community than whether they happen to be second, third, fourth generation uh, American uh, Jews. So in a sense, the volume also was an effort to disprove uh, the generational determinism model, which was very common uh, in the late 20th century. I think that what's interesting here, as you're talking about the relationship of your approach to the history of American Judaism, to other scholars, and also to the popular perceptions of it, is that I don't want to focus too much just on the 2004 moment, but it seems to be to me of great interest that when we look at, for instance, the Terra Centenary in 1954, and then again, the 350th anniversary in 2004, this is a moment of increased public interest. Jewish public interest, as well as more generally in the history of America's Jews. I think on the one hand, part of what you're doing in the book is to engage in a scholarly conversation with a whole bunch of figures who mostly go unnamed in the book, who have taken these kinds of perspectives, but also with the popular perceptions of American Judaism. And here, I think when you talk about the sense of decline, right, or the idea of a generational model, these are perennially popular perceptions. And so as you were writing the book, as you were composing it and thinking about these issues, uh, you know, why do you think that it matters to disseminate these ideas about American Judaism within a moment of people thinking about the past and also about the future? I 
think that if you view American Jewish life the way I do, it does provide a certain sense of hope uh, to the community. Uh, it's not foreordained uh, that the community will assimilate out of existence. Uh, that doesn't m mean that the future uh, has all been prefigured, and I go out of my way to emphasize uh, in the book that people make history, and I talk about people in the book precisely because I do believe that individuals shape history. It's not just a bunch of unseen forces um, that uh, shape us um, uh, without uh, our having any agency whatsoever. And that, I think, is also an important message. At the same time, I did not want this to be a homiletical volume. There are plenty of rabbis who have written um, those kinds of books uh, preaching American Jewish history. I, after all, wanted this book to inform students of American religion who didn't know what to do with American Judaism. And I wanted this book also to inform Israelis who had uh, no knowledge of American Jewish life. I knew uh, that the book would be translated into Hebrew, and it was very important to me that there be a book that would explain uh, this uh, strange animal called American Judaism uh, to um, uh, well, roughly half the Jewish world, which lives in Israel. So that was another goal. And I, I tried hard to write a book that would appeal to all of those audiences, Jewish, non-Jewish, Israeli, and to inform them um, and, and to provide um, a sufficient number of footnotes so those who wanted to check up or to read a larger literature would be able to mm -hmm. do that as well. Right. And that's what seemed to me important. There was no similar book. Um, and my own uh, teacher, uh, Sidney Alstrom, the great historian of American uh, religion, uh, knew uh, and, and, and said to me that American Judaism uh, is hard to understand. He considered it weak in his own a religious history of the American people. And, and oh, I had in mind his injunction that we really needed a, a history of American Judaism that uh, would speak to larger audiences. And that remained my goal, I have to say, in the second edition, where I brought in themes that seemed to me important American religion as a whole. You've talked about three distinct audiences, a Jewish audience, a non-Jewish American audience, and also Israeli Jews. You know, when you talk about the history of American Jews, why do you think that it matters to, to reach these different audiences? And why do you think that it's important for each of these different groups to understand this history? I think that American Jews need to understand their history to appreciate how the current moment was shaped that the past was different, that suggests that the future uh, may be different, and how distinctive in many ways the American Jewish experience is. Folks in American religion um, for many years understood America in a very Protestant way. Sidney Olstrom actually was the person who began to break that down and broaden our understanding of American religion. Um, I think it's fair to say that folks in American religion knew that 
Judaism was an important component of American religion. Yes, and indeed, it's more significant than its small numbers would imply, in part because Judaism is the most important uh, non-Christian religion uh, in American history. And uh, they wanted to understand it, and they wanted to understand it in terms that they were familiar with. So revivals are things they understand. Holidays are things that they understand, symbols, uh, religious leaders, and so forth. In terms of Israelis, there I, I think we face the fact that Judaism in America is so very different than Judaism either in the Sephardic world or in the East European setting. And, um, you know, many of them didn't understand it, didn't know where it came from, had uh, all sorts of stereotypes about non-Orthodox Judaism. Uh, The most popular question that I still get when I teach in Israel is, how come we don't have a chief rabbi in America? Well, once you begin to examine that question, it explains the difference between American religion and and, and the situation in most other countries uh, where Jews lived. I think uh, today, when we appreciate the chasm between Israel and North American Jewry more than ever, my book is even more important for those Israelis who truly and honestly want to understand why Judaism, as it exists in the New World, as they see it when they visit North America, is so very different from what they know in Israel. And and there's almost nothing in Hebrew um, that does that, and uh, that's why I was so grateful uh, to Merkaz Shazar for translating the book and for those who supported that translation. So I want to think about what has changed now mm-hmm. between the two editions of the book. Quite a lot has happened in the past 15 years. When when you look at the book, though, that the second edition, you left, for the most part, the body of the text intact. You wrote a new introduction, and you expanded and updated the conclusion. When you look back on the past 15 years of uh, American Jewish history, as well as scholarship in American Jewish historical studies, what do you think has changed? And how does that affect the way that you look at American Judaism? In what ways do you think that the developments in American society or among American Jews or within the scholarly realm either ratify your perspective on American Judaism uh, or lead you to reconsider some aspects? So what I tried to do in this second edition, and that was somewhat negotiated with the publisher, after all, it's a second edition, not a new book entirely. I used the introduction to summarize 15 years of historiography. What are the new themes. Uh, In some cases, I summarized. Some cases, I uh, either agree or in some cases disagree. Uh, But I hope that people would get a sense of a vibrant field. And um, there are very few places where I, I truly have changed my mind, and those are not deeply significant. To give one example, we now know that the mikvah, the ritual bath, was much more important in early America and indeed in the whole New World than uh, I perhaps had earlier thought, and Laura Liebman's uh, work has helped us understand that. And some of her other scholarship, I think, is very important. In the new conclusion, I wanted to talk about important themes and have to say, uh, I myself was surprised at how much had changed. 
Uh, I barely touched on gay synagogues, on LGBTQ, and so on in the first edition. That is a movement that has advanced more quickly than any other social movement in America. And it had a transformative effect on American Jewish life. All of the major movements now take gay students and uh, most synagogues across the spectrum have members who self-identify that way. The story of the AIDS epidemic has not well been integrated into American religion. I thought it was a very important story, a moment to remember. I was glad to have an opportunity to uh, integrate that into the second edition. Other themes, uh, nobody could have predicted the decline of conservative Judaism uh, in numbers. And it was important to try and understand that. And again, whereas others understand it purely within the context of Judaism, I point out here that if you look at American religion, all of uh, centrist movements, all of those mainline Protestant denominations that stood between liberal Protestantism and fundamentalism, they all declined. And the amazing thing is, they declined at approximately the same rate as conservative Judaism. That suggests that you needed a broader cultural explanation, the decline of the center in America that impacted on a Jewish life as well. Uh, I wanted to say more about the rise of Chabad. Mine was actually the first history of American Judaism, even to include Chabad, uh, but um, in the last 15 years, uh, since the passing of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, Chabad, contrary to what most people believed would happen, in fact, grew enormously and actually brought in many of the folks who left the conservative movement, ironically. I thought that is important uh, obviously, Israel had to be dealt with differently, given um, the changing relationship in in the 21st century. And I have a section on that. And then uh, the enormous impact of the Great Recession on Judaism and Jewish life, the Madoff scandal, the financial impact, its effect on millennials, all of that had to be dealt with. So I have to say it took me much longer than I thought to produce this updated chapter. Uh, I found myself thinking about many of these developments and how much Jewish religious life changes in just a decade and a half. Uh, and I hope readers will think to themselves, this is a very dynamic religious movement. It's not static at all. Uh, we haven't paid attention to these changes, but they're very dramatic and likely to be no less dramatic in the 15 years to come. Right, right. So you mentioned a whole range of ways in which things have changed in the past 15 years. You only briefly glossed over the scholarship aspect. I'm wondering if you maybe want to summarize what you think are the one or two most significant developments in terms of scholarship in American Jewish history over the past 10 or 15 years that you took into account as you were looking at the volume again and why you think that those changes, those new developments are particularly significant as we think about how we conceptualize American Judaism? Um, uh, let me point to two. I spend many, many pages reviewing uh, the scholarship. I was happy to talk about um, a major difference, really, between my work and the work of Professor Chasya Diner, who had similarly 
written a one-volume history. And the difference, and there really are two schools now of studying American Jewish life, uh, I adhere to the more traditional chronology which distinguishes between Central Europe and Central European immigrants and what they did and the East European immigration and what it did. Professor Diner had argued that this was completely artificial and uh, that instead we should talk about a whole century of immigration, uh, roughly from 1820 to 1920, to stop distinguishing Eastern from Central Europe. Um, I think that is a misreading. It's not the way people who lived through it um, experienced it. And I drew attention to some of the work of Tobias Brinkman, who um, has really shown how Central and East European Jews differed in important ways. I think think those differences are reflected in the American setting. Uh, In many ways, I think that the way people understood it is the right way and reject really the notion that uh, the distinction between Central and Eastern Europe is an artificial one. Um, Now, in other ways, there's been a lot of work in the last uh, 15 years on post-World War II Jewish history. Also, think that there is an emerging new understanding of America and the Holocaust. Uh, We don't have a new synthesis yet, uh, but I was very eager to alert readers to that because I've long felt that the traditional view that American Jews didn't know, didn't do, uh, were uh, uh, guilty of manifold crimes is a historical misreading. And we've begun to have a literature on the clandestine efforts of American Jews to um, uh, spy on Nazis in their midst, to find out what's going on in the Holocaust, to bring in as many Jews as they could. And of course, all of this had to be done secretly, uh, and that's why historians haven't picked it up. They assume just because it was in secret, it didn't exist. That, I think, uh, is a very important new theme in the literature. Uh, I would say that the Israeli scholarship uh, continues heavily to berate American Jews for what they did not do. Uh, there are Stephen Wise and the leadership of the Jewish community is a punching bag. And I, I wanted to begin to point in that chapter to a different interpretation. Right. So I think that when we think about what has happened over the past 15 years in terms of scholarship in American Jewish history, one of the things that is particularly exciting is to see is continuing flourishing. If you look, however, I think at the the introduction to the first edition of the book, you start out by reflecting a little bit on how things have changed over the course of your career more broadly, where you uh, reflect on uh, your anecdotal experience where you were told not to study American Jewish history, that it wasn't that interesting, that what you should do is, I think what you said is that, that you were told to go and study Talmud. You know, what do you see having taken place over the course of your career? Uh, and how do you see your scholarship and this particular book uh, in both of its editions you know, fitting into this trajectory and this development? Uh, it's a wonderful question. And indeed, one of the things that readers might do is to see the quality of publishers 
publishing in the field of American Jewish history. Today, it's common to see the Ivy League publishers, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or Oxford, Cambridge, publishing in this field. That almost didn't happen in um, the earlier era. It was hard to publish, and only third-rate publishers published in those fields. Of course, today, major universities have chairs in American Jewish history. Um, uh, The transformation, as one looks from, uh, let's say, uh, 1975, when I entered graduate school, I think I am the very first person who went to Yale's history department with the intent of studying American Jewish history. And when you you move from 1975 to today, Yale has produced several very notable American Jewish historians, and others have come out of major universities and occupy major Position. So, in many ways, the field, I think, has come into its own, just as American Jewry has come into its own. There are today two great centers of Jewish life, one in Israel and one uh, in, in the United States. Um, uh, that's roughly 80% of world Jewry. And uh, that's uh, very significant to try and understand those two centers. I'm also very happy to see increasingly American-trained scholars who work in European Jewish history who nevertheless are paying attention to the American Jewish experience, asking questions about the relationship between American Jewry, European Jewry, and that increasingly barrier between um, what used to be called modern Jewish history and American Jewish history, as if America wasn't part of modern Jewish history, that barrier is a thing of the past. Uh, There are plenty of uh, European Jewish historians now who teach American Jewish history and who are exploring the continuities, discontinuities, linkages um, uh, that uh, crisscross the modern Jewish experience. And that, I think, is very much where the best work in the field uh, is going. You know, especially I think that when we think about your book and, and Hasi Diner's book, also published in 2004, this is also a reflection of the maturation of American Jewish history. Even if you look in 1954, when Oscar Hanlon and other people were were writing about American Jewish history and also trying to publish around the tercentenary that year, there was an effort to make American Jewish history a, so to speak, a proper scholarly endeavor. Um, but you know, even Hanlon's book was quite apologetic. You know, even the title. It's adventures in freedom, I believe. Right, adventure in freedom. Right? Yeah, it's uh, it has a, a a very particular kind of patriotic and ideological angle to it, and I think that the more recent scholarship certainly does not. Um, this is also a very interesting trajectory as we think about the role of American Jewish historical scholarship as it has changed, especially when you think about your work, for instance, with the National Museum of American Jewish History and uh, the publication of your book and uh, the work of other scholars around commemoration and public history, public memory. In what way do you think that the developments in American Jewish history as a field relate to changes in the way in which American Jews see and understand themselves? I'd like to think that my work and, and the work of colleagues has helped to see American Jewish history also as part and parcel of America itself. I I write as an American historian uh, and as a scholar of American religion and interact with people who are interested in Mormon history and Catholic history and so on. My hope is 
scholars of American Jewish history can speak to that audience. Now, the truth is uh, a whole group of American historians not interested in religion have questioned whether there is such a thing as a separate American Jewish history. They themselves are deeply secular in many cases. They are uncomfortable with the idea uh, that somehow there's something distinctive and different about American Jewish history. We don't write about redheads. Why do we write about Jews? I actually reject that uh, view, but I think there's no such problem in writing about American Judaism. Clearly, Judaism plays a part in American religion. And one of the reasons I did this book and have been part of the American Academy of Religion is it seems to me that in an era when ethnic history declined and Jews were told they're just part of the white race, the distinctiveness of Judaism in America and its interaction on a religious basis was uh, much uh, easier, in in a sense, uh, to put forward, to gain traction than uh, those who wanted to write about Jews uh, as a people, where they ran into all sorts of difficulties uh, because of uh, the prevailing cultural moments, so very different than with the rise of ethnic history in the 60s. So those are some of the changes, but I, I do think that American Jewish history, although not a field that's growing at quite the same level uh, or speed as it once did, has secured a place, uh, much as German history, Jewish history and Russian Jewish history. Uh, but I, I, And I'm quite confident that a new generation of scholars, well-trained and alert to both American history and Jewish history, you really have to know both in order to understand the American Jewish experience, that that new generation of scholars will indeed move off in new directions, ask new questions, and I think we're already seeing some of that work. Right. Right. I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier because it relates very closely to what you were just talking about. You started to speak before about some of the differences between your book, uh, American Judaism, and Hasi Diner's book, which is The Jews of the United States. Uh, One of the things that is interesting there is that that reflects a very different perspective, even just in the title. One focuses on religion. The other one, in a certain way, you could say focuses on people, even just within the title. Uh, And then, of course, there's also Ellie Letterhandler's book that was published uh, a a few years later. Uh, You know, it wasn't really publicized and promoted around the 350th anniversary, but it's also, as you've mentioned, one of a number of of these syntheses. There, There are kind of two issues that that relate to this. As we try to situate and understand your work and how it relates to other approaches to American Jewish history, in addition to the chronology, in what ways do you see these approaches, yours and uh, Hasi Diner and Ellie Letterhandler's as being distinctive from one another? And why do you think that those distinctions are important? You know, you talked about the chronological component, but what difference does it make in a certain way when we say that that there is one periodization here, right, 1820 to 1924, that's Hasi Diner's perspective uh, versus yours, you know, which is kind of a more traditional division based on which group of Jews were the primary immigrant group. So you know, when we think about these distinctions, in what ways do you see differences between these perspectives? Why do you think that they matter? And in what ways do they reflect the diversity and the dynamism of American Judaism and of American Jewish history as a field? Well, so I think there are some profound differences. First of all, both Letterhandler and Diner saw more traditionally than me to synthesize social, political, cultural, economic, and religious history, whereas 
I argued that religion was the engine driving the train, even though I obviously dealt with those other developments, social, political, and so on, which shaped religion, there definitely was an engine. Uh, And I make the point here uh, that I think there are other engines. Yes, I I hope someone writes an economically-based history of Jews in America. It's really very surprising uh, how little attention has been paid to economic and political history of Jews in America. Uh, But I do think you get a better narrative. My book is not a textbook. It's a real narrative. There are people and there's a storyline. And I could do that because religion is the engine that drives the train. So that's one difference. But there is another very important difference that should be highlighted. I spend three full chapters on the early period in American Jewish life. Diner calls her Jews of the United States. Colonial period gets almost no attention. And the truth is, very, very quickly, that book moves to the 19th century. And later, Handler similarly devotes very little attention to the early period. Now, Of course, there weren't many Jews in America in the early period, but just as when you study people, childhood often reveals a lot about the shaping of a person. So it seems to me that the early period, and most importantly, the American Revolution and its impact had an absolutely shaping influence on what makes American Jewish life distinctive. Without the revolution, you can't understand American Jewish history, in my view. And those early Jews, while small in number, they set down patterns that were endlessly replicated by later Jews. Uh, So I did, and and unapologetically, and wouldn't change a word of it, I did uh, spend a lot of time on the early period because that, in my view, is when American Jewish life was shaped. For letter handler, really, it's the East European Jewish experience that shapes American Jewish life. The other is prologue. That's very much the way the story is taught in Israel, allowing for the two juries to be shaped, so to speak, at the same time. East European Jews come to America, others go to the land of Israel, and setting up a sort of parallel situation. Um, And as I say, in Diner's case, I think she believes that it's this century of immigration that is central to the shaping of American Jewish life, whereas I, in many ways, argue that uh, the patterns were set before then, that they were set in the revolution itself, some of them set in the colonial period, and that you need to understand that earlier period in order to understand what happens later. And that's a very important difference of opinion. Uh, One of the things that Letter Handler does, which I hope more uh, will be done with, uh, he talks about a special relationship with Spain, with Germany, and with Russia, uh, and argues that American Jewish life really maintained for a long time that special relationship with those three countries. I think it's a very interesting idea. Um, There's much to be learned from it. I hope one day he develops it into a full-scale book. While while I, I think there are echoes of that in other works, he articulates it most clearly. But what is interesting, I think, is that you have these syntheses. There was a long time in the writing of Jewish history when we were allergic to syntheses, when there was uh, a sense, oh, that's what a previous generation uh, did, and, and, and historians wrote monographs. 
it's nice to see a return to synthesis, uh, whether it's my work in American Jewish history or uh, Hasidism or, or uh, uh, Russia and Poland. We have seen new syntheses in recent years, and I think they provide a baseline on which a new generation of scholars will be able to build. Right. I think that when we look at these different approaches uh, in synthesizing American Jewish history, these are not just intellectual distinctions. One person has this perspective, somebody else has another perspective. In a certain way, the way that I look at it anyway, each of these ways of looking at American Jewish history or at American Judaism have very significant ramifications. I think it's a question of what is put at the center of American Jewish history, what is, as you said, the driving engine. As you talk about religion as the driving engine, what do you see as the significance of this? Is this just a question of your own disciplinary background coming as a scholar of religion, right, that this is coming from? You know, in what ways does this reflect your perspective on American Jews that it allows you to tell a different kind of story about American Judaism. And then as a kind of a follow-up to this, I'll just put this out there now as well. You know, you talk about American Judaism and religion as its as its engine. What does it say about that engine as we look towards an era with uh, a rising number of, so to speak, religious nuns, right? N-O-N-E-S, people who say they are Jews of no religion. How do we understand the importance of religion in American Judaism in the past as well as in the present and future as we think about the transformation of American Judaism? I think if you look at the earlier generation of people who wrote American Jewish history, they either were trained in Jewish history or they were trained in American studies, and that influenced the way they wrote, the approach, and so forth. I believed then and still now that religion is very important and that it was crucial to understand Judaism within the world of American religion, meaning in order to understand what Jews do, you have to be familiar with what Protestants are doing, what Catholics are doing, now perhaps with what Muslims are doing. And that that is a very significant and overlooked context. So, for example, the rise of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, really parallels what's going on in American life generally. I wrote American Judaism at the very end of a period of revival when we were excited about all these born-again Jews, Ba'alei Tshuva, and we saw the impact of the Jewish catalog and uh, the Chavura movement and all sorts of people who uh, had grown up rather secular and suddenly went back to Judaism. Well, uh, the great uh, evangelist Finney knew that every revival is followed by a period of backsliding, and so it has been in American life. Uh, We are now in a period of religious recession. That's true not only of Jews, but uh, throughout American religion. Anyone who reads my book will be unsurprised to learn that I think the seeds of the next revival are being sown now, meaning, yes, there is a decline, but in another bunch of years, uh, newspapers will, will write about surprising return of religion on the part of young people, and, uh, well, it will be different in some respects. Uh, there'll be a religious revival, and Judaism will participate in that, just as the 1950s revival surprised everyone following the enormous uh, religious decline in the 30s. Obviously, much of the sociological literature today assumes secularization, that religion is 
not only declining, but will continue to decline, they say. They uh, argue that America is finally catching up, in their words, to Europe in this respect, and they see a very different trajectory. Uh, One can, in a sense, see the different visions of the past shape different understandings of the present and different visions of the future, and uh, I know I uh, will see which which turns out to be accurate. But I'm glad that there are multiple visions, so that policymakers can uh, uh, not believe that everybody is of one mind. But I want to jump back for a second to something that you said earlier: the interest in syntheses. In the course of your career, you've written many monographs, uh, you know, many articles leading up to the publication of, of American Judaism. I, I was wondering if you maybe wanted to comment on your effort to synthesize American Jewish history and how that relates to your own intellectual development in terms of how you think about American Judaism. Uh, I think in, in particular, I think that, that it is interesting as well that some of the perspectives that, that you are sort of putting forward in the way that you synthesize are also closely related to Jacob Rader Marcus. Uh, you know, with whom, you know, I know that, that that you didn't study with him, but that you worked closely with him, you know, during your time in Cincinnati. You know, Marcus, you know, as you know, and, you know, listeners might not know this, he's a, you know, very important figure in terms of my own research, in terms of thinking about American Jewish history. Uh, you know, and so I'm curious if you maybe wanted to, to I, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe if you wanted to to say a few words about how you understand this book within your own scholarly development and your relationship with you know, these other people within the field who have also tried to synthesize American Jewish history often in very different ways. Uh, it's a, you know, a big and wonderful question. Uh, I was very fortunate, I think, to have studied both with general scholars, David Brian Davis, Sidney Alstrom, and also to have been influenced by Jacob Brader Marcus. So when I talk about drawing from different perspectives, I'm, I'm really taking my own studies where I have a degree in American history and American religion in Jewish history and 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 uh, i'm i'm saying that's yeah that's what you need in order to properly understand this field all those different perspectives but i i think i was trying to synthesize all of them to bring them together not simply to carry forward professor marcus professor marcus um jacob brader marcus gave us the facts of history. He once said to me, as I think almost no other historian would have done, that he would trade in all of his theories for one new fact. And I think it's fair to say people read Marcus for the data much more than for the theoretical, conceptual insights. And that also, I think, reflects on the difference in approach between, say, Salo Baron, who was full of theories, and Jacob Rader Marcus. I think um, that I have great respect for Marcus's emphasis on getting the facts right and on the need for new data. And I'm very proud of the basic research that I have done, not just uh, collecting what others did and putting it uh, in new paragraphs. Uh, But at the same time, I do think that a book needs to have certain themes and conceptualizations. And it, it seemed to me that while uh, Professor Marcus's seven large books on American Jewish history are a great gift, there needed to be a one volume that could appeal beyond just the academy and inform a larger uh, Jewish community. And one of the things that I tried to do in this book and have tried to do, I would say, 
in much of my recent work, Lincoln, Grant, and so on, is to make the case that historians can write and should write for a larger audience, and that we can simultaneously inform that audience, give them a way of thinking about the past, even as we likewise um, add new data to the field and write kind of at the highest level. So that's really what what I was trying to do, but you're perfectly correct that my interest in the early period dovetails and was in some ways influenced by Marcus's interest. Um, You know, he'd written on the colonial American Jew. My doctoral dissertation was on the next period, writing on Mordecai Noah. Uh, But I called that book Jacksonian Jew, to make the point even then that you needed both worlds, the Jacksonian and the Jewish. And uh, I've maintained that perspective really throughout uh, the rest of my work. Right. I think that that there are so many issues we could dive into this. You know, as we've discussed many times, uh, Marcus and the nature of American Jewish history, I, I do want to move on to an, a, a final set of issues, which deals with thinking about the future of American Judaism. Uh, you know, I know that, that, that we're both historians, so we're better at talking about the past than the future. But this is something that you also have written about extensively, both when we look at the conclusion to the book, as well as in a handful of other publications. For instance, in uh, I think it was 2003, you published uh, a really interesting essay uh, titled American Jews in the New Millennium, where you talked about a series of transformations and challenges that you saw facing American Jews in the future, demographic changes, potentially the shrinking of American Jews in terms of their their national importance, the changes in the Jewish diaspora more generally, as well as uh, challenges like, uh, for instance, would the 21st century be an era of assimilation or revitalization, or if there is a a mission for Jews to be passionate about. And so this to me is really fascinating because here you have at basically the same moment that you were finishing up the American Judaism book, you were also looking towards the future and thinking about what that would bring. And you do that again in a certain way within the conclusion where you, you on the one hand look to what has happened in the past 15 years. You mentioned the growth of Chabad, just to give one instance. Uh, so in a certain way, it feels like the conclusion, the new conclusion of the book is in a certain way an updated version of this 2003 essay. So uh, looking back, in what ways do you think that the trends that you talked about 15, 16 years ago reflect what is actually happening now that we're already essentially two decades into the 21st century? Well, I think some of the issues like boundaries um you know when do you drop out of the community certainly are very much on people's minds we may talk about it in terms of intermarriage or assimilation but those are internal jewish uh, words boundaries help us to understand that every group has boundaries and at a certain point you, um, uh, you know, you're, you're no longer part of the group. There are always those who want to police those boundaries strictly and uh, those who would like to be as inclusive as possible. And I, I hope that by using value-free language, I, I could help people understand that. At the same time, There are things that I don't think I could have foreseen. Notwithstanding all the fears about numbers, the Jewish community in America has actually been growing. Now, part of the reason for that is Russian-speaking Jews, but part of the reason is that many, far more than 50%, of the children of intermarriage continue to identify with the Jewish community. Obviously, you only need 50% in order to maintain the same numbers. And the fact that more than 50% continue to identify in some way as Jewish 
was not foreseen and is significant. Um, of course, it will depend on uh, on us, really, whether their children and their children will still uh, talk about themselves as Jews or not. But uh, that's a good example of a trend that on the one hand was predicted, but on the other hand developed somewhat differently than anybody foresaw. One of the things I'm very proud of in the new volume is making the point that in one generation, the idea that there is a kind of Jewish look that you looked around and, oh, yeah, he's Jewish, he's Jewish, uh, because she's Jewish, because they had curly hair and a certain kind of nose, that's totally disappeared. The very notion that there is such a Jewish appearance seems bizarre to most of my students. And that is, again, because partly intermarriage, partly adoption, partly immigrants from Israel, nobody would have predicted such great change in one generation. So I I think in some ways we do see that there are themes that one foresaw in 2004 and that are in fact still with us or even more with us than we would have predicted. But there are also developments that surprise us both positively and negatively. And it's always been that way. Um, And uh, uh, that suggests both the potential of the historian in pointing in new directions, but also uh, the humility that we have to have in predicting uh, the future almost Uh, all of the great predictions about the future of American Jewish life, if you uh, study them from the uh, 18th century onwards, have proven totally wrong. It seems to me that where the historian is, is at his best, in my case, is showing new developments that perhaps have not been on people's radar screen. And they will suddenly recognize, oh, this is very significant. It does mark an important change. And then we can think about what does it mean that there's no such thing as a looking Jewish as a anymore? Uh, and how does that affect uh, ideas about Jewish peoplehood? And I hope that some of those discussions uh, will in fact take place. Right. Uh, I think that you raise uh, a number of significant issues. When we talk about the role of history and the role of the historian, the podcast and, and a lot of what I think about in terms of my research as well, um, but especially on the podcast, is thinking about why history matters, Jewish history in particular, but also much more broadly. And I think that one of the things that is interesting that I think has come through in our conversation is that there are significant ways in which American Jewish history matters. I guess uh, you know, as we come towards the the conclusion of our conversation, looking at your book, and as you think about again the various audiences that you want to reach with it, your attempt to synthesize American Jewish history and focus on a number of major themes. In what ways have you tried to communicate the ways in which American Jewish history matters when we want to understand you know, America as a whole? When we want to understand. American religion or the history of religion more broadly, when we want to understand the relationship of American Jews with other Jews around the world, what do you want readers to take away from this book and also from the study of American Jewish history more broadly? I definitely think that American Jewish history matters. I hope they'll take away ideas about how people shape history, and I hope some of them will be inspired to shape history themselves. In terms of American religion, it's enormously important that there was a non-Christian religion in America from a very early date. The whole discussion of the Christian character of America would be different had Jews not been in 
the country. I think in many ways the Constitution might have looked different had the founders not known, and they did know, that there were Jews in the country. Over and over again, one can see that the presence of Jews in America with their distinctive history has made a difference. I also think other groups, most uh, profoundly Muslims, when they look at the history of Jews in America, it gives them enormous hope. First of all, they see a group that has maintained its identity for uh, much more than three centuries. Uh, as second of all, and showing that a minority religion can do so, they can see how Jews have made an impact on America. And, and indeed, it's perfectly clear that in many ways, Muslims in America want to emulate the success of the American Jewish community. And I've actually heard from Muslims that they read my book and it gave them a, a sense of what could be. One of them said, you know, I hope one day there will be a book on American Islam that will be able to do a parallel chronicle to what you did in American Judaism. Uh, that was a very high compliment. So in many ways, it seems to me uh, my book can both inform and inspire and give a sense of history, a sense of change, a sense that the future is not predetermined in a linear fashion, but it's really ours to shape, and a sense that some of the problems that American Jews worry about today They've been worrying about since the 17th century, and that gives they're not new problems, and that at least gives you a sense that if we're not likely to solve the problem, maybe we can muddle through for another generation and another generation, just as we have in the past. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. Always a pleasure. And thanks to you for listening to our conversation today with Jonathan Sarna. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.